Welcome to The Recovery Show. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we and our guests may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences as they relate to the topic of shame. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I will be your host today. Joining me is co-host Swetha. How are you today, Swetha? Great, Spencer. Thanks. And also next to Swetha is our special guest host, Nick. How are you doing, Nick? Awesome. Thank you. All right. The first segment of today's episode of The Recovery Show will be our discussion of the topic shame. Following a musical break, we will talk about our lives in recovery, about what's happening in the meetings we attend and in our lives. We will follow that with brief news about the podcast before closing with another musical break. I'd like to open with a reading. This reading is from the uh, Al-Anon Daily Reader, Courage to Change. We all make mistakes, but hopefully as we apply the Al-Anon program and continue to grow in self-awareness, we will learn from those mistakes. Amends can be made for any harm we've done, and we can change our behavior and attitude so that we won't repeat the same errors. Thus, even painful past experiences can help us learn to create a better future. The greatest obstacle to this learning process is shame. Shame is an excuse to hate ourselves today for something we did or didn't do in the past. There is no room in a shame-filled mind for the fact that we did our best at the time. No room to accept that as human beings we are bound to make mistakes. If I feel ashamed, I need a reality check because my thinking is probably distorted. Even though it may take great courage, if I share about it with an Al-Anon friend, I will interrupt the self-destructive thoughts and make room for a more loving and nurturing point of view. With a little help, I may discover that even my most embarrassing moments can bless my life by teaching me to turn in a more positive direction. As I said, my name is Spencer, and uh, so we're talking about shame today. And I think I'm going to start out uh, by... uh, talking my under, a little bit about my understanding of the difference between shame and guilt, because I think they, they often get um, confused with each other. And uh, the way that I understand that is that sh- uh, guilt is a feeling that I did something bad. And when I feel guilty, I can apologize, I can make amends, and I can get past it. Shame is a feeling that I am bad. And that's a lot harder to deal with because the target of the shame is me. Um, the, the, the instigator, if you will, of the shame is probably me. Um, and, I, and I somehow have to deal with myself and with my feelings of, of lack of self-worth and of um, being a bad person. And uh, I, you know, I liked what it said in the reading about, about beating ourselves up over things that, that we did or said in the past, because that's often where my shame comes from. Swetha, what's your understanding? I, I really agree with you. Shame is more feeling that there is something at the core of my being that is wrong with me, something unfixable. <clears throat> I'm more likely to say, hey, I'm sorry I did this because I, I feel guilty. I'm more likely to fess up and say, you know, I, I did this, I'm sorry, and because that's not a definition of who I am. But when I feel ashamed, 
I try to hide it. There's, I, that is my first response. Like no one can know. I, I'm, I, and I constantly walk around. Well, I try not to, but sometimes I walk around thinking, if they know that there's something essentially wrong with me, I'm going to be the first person in the Al-Anon recovery program where they say, "Don't come back." <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and so that's that's the difference between shame and guilt for me. I'm willing to talk about the things I've done, but sometimes I'm I'm really scared to talk about who I am or something that I feel would be reflected on who I am because that's what shame is for me Nick yeah I think uh shame is kind of the big secret that I didn't even know that I had um I started studying shame very with a strong focus this past year and one of the things that I read about was that when we're ashamed it we actually have a physical visceral response to a situation so we can be flooded with um chemicals um, adrenaline and it's a real physical connection. And when I started paying attention to the situations in which I had a physical reaction to, to a situation, um, it was really powerful. And I, I hadn't even understood how deep shame was. And, you know, it's right. It, it's one of the earliest messages I ever got about not being good enough or, or being wrong. But guilt is easy. Guilt is, yeah. is surface. It's light. It's, um, it's not hard for me to apologize for a mistake, but how do I, how do I not get cast out of the tribe? I have that same feeling of I'm going to be found out and then I, because I'm inherently unworthy yeah. and then I will be shunned. Yeah. And it's terrifying because I think part of the connection of shame is that fear of abandonment. That's part of my connection to it is that if they find out that I am, that I'm really not worthy, then they will leave me. You know, I, I, one of our uh, recovery books uh, called Paths to Recovery um, has a set of questions uh, for each step. And in the questions for step five, one of them says something like, is there something that I'm not willing to tell anybody? Oh. <laughs> and you want us to tell you now? And the second, <laughs> no, 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 no. And the second part of that question is, can I talk about it now? Uh, um, and, uh, you know, the first time I was doing the steps, I came through there and I saw that question uh, and I said, yes, there is and absolutely not. <laughs> um, you know, those were my answers. And, and the reason, mm -hmm. the reason for absolutely not was because of my shame over what I did mm. um, and moreover what I thought. Um, right. And, uh, you know, I felt that if I admitted to having done this thing in the past, that, as you said, you know, everybody would look at me and think, oh, man, they, what is that guy? You know, <laughs> we don't want to be friends with him. We don't want him around. They're going to kick me out of the group and so yeah. on. And, and I, <clears throat> I know that's not true. I know that, you know, intellectually. But um, the shame part of me kept telling me that story. Yeah. It kept telling me that story. Um, and, uh, you know, I was listening, um, to, uh, Brene Brown, who's a shame researcher, uh, talk and she gave a couple of Ted talks. Um, I'm going to put a link to the one about shame up on, on the uh, show notes. And, uh, she was, she was talking about shame and she said, you know, shame plays two tapes. She said the first tape is you're not good enough. And if you can get past that first tape, then it starts with the second tape. Who do you think you are? Mm. And when I heard her say that, I was like, oh, jeez, <laughs> that's me. 
I get I get both of those. I get both of those playing all the time. Sometimes uh, I uh, have, and and this you know the the self worth thing is is really tied up in there. And and despite you know successes in my life, despite um, what people tell me, despite um, the love that I get, I continue to feel that. I'm a fake. I'm going to be found out, and that directly feeds in into my shame. Uh, I don't know. You guys, uh, do you guys hear those tapes? All the time, and I definitely, um, I definitely empathize with you, Spencer. There, where you said that, despite all the love and um, uh, accolades that you get, that you still feel the shame. For me that second that I get the accolade, or the second someone says, you know, I love you, or something like that, um, I think yes. I fooled them. <laughs> they don't know. And so um, then after that second is gone, I come back to realizing, oh, man, they don't know. They don't know what I really am. And that's, uh, that's, kind, of my, that's kind of my shame is um, I'm not, that I'm not good enough. And that's, that's constantly playing. And uh, I don't often get past the I'm not good enough tape to the second track. But uh, when I do, <laughs> who do you think you are is definitely, by the way, that's a great Spice Girls song as an aside. Um, <laughs> who do you think you are? Yeah, definitely, definitely plays. Um, because I, even when I get past you're not good enough, I think, but can I do this? Is this even something that I'm allowed to do? Am I, and I guess it comes back, again, it comes back down to tape one then. <laughs> are you good enough? Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's that's me. What do you have, Nick? Yeah, I heard the note that I took from the the Brene Brown TED lecture was you're never good enough. So it's right. not even that oh. you're not good enough. It's that it is impossible to attain a state of being good enough. And you know that was a message that I got all the time growing up, which was you're not living up to your potential. Yeah. And but yet the potential was always undefined and it was never achievable. And I never knew what it was. I just knew that I constantly was lacking in measuring up to some standard that I figured at some point someone would tell me what that was. And I think that's why I'm such a good rule follower because I always feel like if I follow the rules, then uh, at least I know that I'm doing all the right things. And yet I know that there are rules, at least in the house I grew up in, um, that are not communicated well. And the funny thing is growing up also... um, you know, we were economically challenged. And part of the message in the neighborhood in Brooklyn in the 70s and 80s was, you know, go do better than us, go get a better education, go do more, but don't think you're better than us. And so it would be a lot of like, go away to college and go do these great things. But, um, you know, don't don't think that you it's made you any different or better than it, it hasn't made you superior. And that's a shame-based message. Yeah. And so it's, I felt like the whole borough is uh, <laughs> was bathed in that at some point, yeah. uh, certainly within the, the people in my family, my extended family. Wow. Um, some, other, some other questions that we found in the uh, path to recovery uh, that would relate to this shame message is, how do I judge myself? Um, and, and do I feel sorry for myself? Um, how do I feel I've been a victim? What is my part in it? And, uh, you know, so the what is my part in it? I mean, I guess that's part of the how do we start recovering from this is, is looking yeah, yeah. at, um, you know, uh, our, our side of things. But um, how do I judge myself uh, poorly um, or stringently? I, I tend to judge myself much more stringently than I judge the people around me mm. because, well, I think part of it is the thing that we talk about, about comparing our own insides to other people's outsides. Oh, yeah. 
And I look at the people around me and say, well, they're doing well, they're successful, they're happy, they're, um, you know, uh, they're obviously doing a good job. And I, and then I look at my inside and I say, wow, I'm really messed up. And I know I screwed up this thing I did the other day at work. And, you know, nobody seems to have caught on to the fact that I screwed it up, but, um, you know, or I didn't do it as well as I wanted to. And that's part of the judging that, mm-hmm. uh, the standards that I set for myself are tend to be much higher than the standards I set for the people around me. Mm-hmm. And then, and then I don't achieve when I don't achieve them. Um, that just feeds into the, the you're not good enough tape. Um, and, you know, uh, well, it's, I guess it's been a year and a half now, but I started a, a new position at work that had new roles, new responsibilities, and I'm, I'm learning my way into it. And my boss is like, you know, really happy with the work I'm doing, but I'm getting the, who do you think you are tape there really strongly because this is new stuff. <clears throat> and I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. I feel like, uh, I could be doing a lot better if I really knew what I was doing. So who the heck am I to be taking on this job? <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, but at the same time, the people around me are like, "Yeah, you're doing a great job, and we love what you know. We love what you come up with." And so, it's it, there's some cognitive dissonance there mm-hmm. for sure, if nothing else. Nick. Yeah. I, I, so in I'm all I've read this book called Letting Go of Shame, and it's um, it's not uh, conference approved literature, but it's by Ronald and Patricia Potter Efron. And um, it is a, a recovery and treatment book in some programs. And my core shame issue or the aspect of it is perfectionism. And so my past belief is that um, competence equals perfection. And what I'm trying to learn is competence equals competence. And what does that mean? And it's setting a whole different standard. And it's not it's not saying that I have to lower my standards in any way. And behave differently. It's I have to perceive the result of my of what I'm doing differently. So it's kind of I've heard in the past, you know, your B effort is everybody else's A effort because that's I'm an overachiever and I tend to <laughs> overachieve things a little bit sometimes. But for me, that was a scary message because then it was that I was um, behaving under my potential again, which is my trigger. Oh, so as I learn, competence equals competence. I am no longer feeding the perfectionism because the other thing that I do is if I'm judging others unreasonably in terms of judging the people that I admire, the competent people, and I put them on a pedestal, not only is that not fair to them, but it's not fair to me because then I'm creating more and more of a distance. And if Mm -hmm. the antidote to shame is empathy, which is what Brene Brown talks about, um, then I'm not being empathetic towards people that I put on a pedestal and I'm certainly not being empathetic towards myself, which is where it all has to start. Um, so I, I'm really trying to learn to kind of get more balanced in these views and not judge others so positively and judge myself so negatively and try to find this kind of middle ground where, you know, we're all more equal. It's more fair. You know, it's a lot more reasonable and loving, I, w- I would argue, yeah. because we're all flawed we're all in the same tribe. We're all in it together. Mm-hmm. And it makes it okay to be wherever you are at the moment, which used to be the hardest thing for me. Yeah. I I really loved what you said about um, competition and competence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, um, I used to live, breathe, and just exist competition. Um, I remember once when I was uh, in school, 
I came home with a percentage grade for my class, and the teacher had sent home a note with me because I'd done so well. She she wrote, Swetha got a 99.36 for the semester, and this is one of the highest grades I've ever had in my class, and you should be so proud of her. And my mom goes, where is that fraction of a percentage gone? <gasps> that was the first thing she said. She was like, where did the rest of that go? <laughs> where is that 0.64%? And I, at the time, I was like, are you serious? But And I thought I didn't internalize it, but then every time I got anything less than 100%, I was like up at the professor's desk, first thing, like, where is this? Where, what, what's <laughs> happening here? What's going on? And um, and that was that was it. Like, I mean, why wasn't I perfect? What what did I miss? What was I doing wrong? And um, and yeah, it's with shame. Even in, the, even in the program, sometimes I find myself doing this. It's sort of a meta thing. I feel ashamed about being ashamed because I know that's not what you're supposed to do in the program. <laughs> <laughs> we can so go there. Judge and judge and judge. <laughs> yeah, just go over and over and over. And um and now, like, I, I'm, I'm able to, I really like the idea of love and empathy. That's generally how I'm able to, uh, get out of that, that psychotic loop of shame. Um, and, uh, I, it is, it is first finding out what my partner is. And I'm able to, because of the program, able to be more in touch with how I feel and realize that I feel ashamed when I do. And, um, and the first thing I do, uh, kind of like what you were saying, Spencer, that those questions in step five, what's the deepest, darkest secret you wouldn't want to tell anyone? And can you tell them that now? In the past, it was everything. <laughs> my life is my deepest, darkest secret that no one can know about. And um, then after I did my fifth, yeah, fifth step, which is sitting down and talking to your sponsor. Uh, well, one of the parts of it is sitting down and talking with your sponsor about your inventory. Um which I was not not happy about, but I did it. After that, um, I, I'm kind of able to learn shame, learn that I feel shame when I'm like, oh, this thing happened and my sponsor can never know. And so the first thing I do when I say that is call my sponsor. <laughs> I'm like, hey, <laughs> so there's this thing that you can never, ever know. Let me tell you about it. And um, And as soon as I tell her, it's like, you know, it's not that big of a deal anymore because she has not gone, you horrible human being. We can never speak again. Don't just block my number. I'm never picking up your calls. Click. She usually just kind of laughs, <laughs> which is nice. And um, and then I am able to just be like, you know what? Maybe this isn't so bad. And then I, you know, kind of talk to my higher power about it. And like, hey, I know you already know I did this. And uh, just between you and me, <laughs> 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 you know, but... um. And uh, I kind of talk about, you know, I'm really scared that this is not good enough. And I'm kind of talking to myself in those moments also. And in that way, I'm start I'm able to stop and say that I, I can still love myself, that that was just an accident or I did something wrong and maybe it wasn't an accident. Maybe it was purposeful and malicious. And, and it's okay that this next second is a new second. We can try again. And uh, just with that compassion and forgiveness and from that compassion and forgiveness, I'm able to love myself. And I that compassion and forgiveness first comes from my higher power, then my sponsor. And then when I kind of feel that, I'm able to do it for myself. And when I feel that love for myself, I'm able to let go of that shame and move on. And this is a constant process. It's not like made the decision to love myself or right. turn my will and um, will and uh, with life over to the care of God, as I understood him. It is a decision in that moment and sometimes t 10 seconds later i'm like i'm so ashamed <laughs> but yeah that's that's how i feel about it spencer it's definitely a process yeah um, and uh, i was thinking as we were talking earlier um as nick was talking about perfectionism in particular 
uh, about the uh, the highlighted phrase we have at the beginning and the end of every sh- set of show notes. Oh yeah. Uh, we say, remember, it doesn't have to be perfect, <laughs> because of course we want what we do here today and next week and last week we want it to be perfect. <laughs> um, and well, number one, that's impossible. Yeah. It only has to be good enough. Mm-hmm. It only has to be competent. It's not a competition, right? Right. Um, and at a second level, at another level, I feel that actually if it's perfect, then maybe someone who's listening will feel, well, they're so perfect, I could never, <laughs> I could never get there. Right, yeah. Um, and, and I know the, some of the feedback that we've gotten, emails we've gotten and so on, people are like, you're so honest, you're so open, I really appreciate it. And, you know, being honest and open means showing our imperfections. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, it means showing our humanity, being human, making mistakes, mm-hmm. and going forward. Um, and uh, I'm, I, I think I'm jumping forward here, but, uh, you know, the, at the end of, of her TED Talk on shame, Brene Brown talks about the man in the arena, mm-hmm. and she talks about us standing outside that arena door saying, well, maybe... Maybe someday, someday when I've got it all together <laughs> uh, and, and I really know what I'm doing, maybe then I'll, I'll open that door and I'll go into the arena and I'll be the man in the arena. And, and she says, you know, that's never going to happen. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and that, that truly living, um, you know, a full life uh, means opening that door and walking in there knowing mm-hmm. that you're not ready Mm-hmm. Um, pushing through that feeling that you're not good enough and who the heck do you think you are that you think you could go in there mm-hmm. and just doing it. Mm-hmm. And man, it's hard. <laughs> I, I do think though that she adds the the really important part is part of what feeds the shame spiral is pretending that we're other and separate from each other, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what we really do want to see is we want to see somebody go in the arena and there, and, and we want to cheer them on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I do, I speak in front of people for my job at times, and I have to remember that they assume I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> they assume I'm prepared. Mm-hmm. They assume <laughs> that I have something valuable to say, and they're really on my side. Right. I mean, I, I can't think of many situations in which I, it's my own fantasy and my own sickness that would make them other and say they that I I am unworthy the minute I am I show up and really I think people really want to cheer each other on in general and mm-hmm. especially when they see others put themselves out there because it is exciting to see somebody else put themselves out there and go wow they can do it and yeah. I might not be able to but they can and that's exciting and then maybe if they do it well but then maybe I can do it because I can see myself risk it a little bit. And especially if we, if we don't feed into the um, secrecy, silence and judgment that shame needs to survive, you know, if we also dare to share mm-hmm. our experience, strength and hope, which is what this recovery program is all about, yeah. um, then we're not feeding those things and we can break through with everybody else. And that's how we can have all these different kind of people show up in a meeting yeah. with totally different stories, totally different backgrounds and still get it and understand that we're all in the same tribe and we're all trying to achieve the same serenity. Right. Oh uh, yeah, I absolutely agree completely um, with uh, especially with feeling that 
I mean, listening to other people being honest and things like that in the program. Um, when I first came into uh, the meetings, especially the Wednesday night meeting is so big, sometimes it can number up to 100, I think, even more. And um, the first few months that I came and I heard people speak there, my first thought was, oh my God, they're so brave and they must have it all together because they're able to talk like this and be open to the judgment of other people and not really, you know, internalize it. That that must be what this program is. Everyone here is perfect. I don't deserve to be here because I can't open my mouth and talk at the meetings. And um, no, <laughs> I found that was not true. I um, eventually was asked to do a lead at that meeting and I kept calling my sponsor uh, right before my lead at that meeting and said, what if they tell me I'm too sick to come back? I mean, I was really honestly scared that that was actually a thing. And she started laughing and she goes, the worst thing that can happen is that you have a terrible talk and you just sound incredibly sick and we say, you, you definitely need to be here. Please keep coming back. <laughs> and I, I kind of clung to that. Um, but uh, <laughs> Success and failure. Right? Success and failure. No matter what, they're going to say, keep coming back. Don't worry. Um, and even now, I mean, I haven't, I've been in the meetings for like, I think, nine or 10 months, something like that, uh, maybe a little less. Um, and I'm still, I was the chair, which is um, for the people that haven't been to meetings before, the chair is the person that opens the meeting and uh, does the Al-Anon preamble and things like that. And um, even though I did it for two months, every single time I was like, maybe I shouldn't start yet, or why am I the one chairing? I was still scared. <laughs> I mean, my the least favorite part of the meeting for me was opening my mouth and saying, good evening, my name is Swetha, and I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon, because that was the moment that I was putting myself out there. And, um, and it made me feel vulnerable. And another thing that uh, Brene Brown said in her talk uh, in the beginning was that people associated vulnerability with weakness. And it, I did for that split second before I started talking, every single meeting, even though I'm in the previous meeting, I knew it wasn't the end of the world. Every single meeting, I would think, if I talk now, I'm going to make myself vulnerable. People are going to judge me. They're going to think I'm horrible. And they're going to tell me to go home. And, um, <laughs> and they never did, did they? <laughs> they you didn't. Kept I, disappointing you, huh? Fooled you. <laughs> <laughs> I kept fooling you guys. No, uh, you guys were, yeah, it's, um, the program was awesome about people not being judgmental. But um, the second that I pushed myself out into that arena, the way Brené Brown says, and felt vulnerable, I realized that for me, um, after a while, after I was able to analyze, not analyze, but just let myself be aware of and notice that vulnerability, I realized that it was, it felt like strength after a while. Being vulnerable doesn't mean that I'm not scared. I'm, I'm scared doing this podcast right now, <laughs> but um, it doesn't, but the fact that I'm vulnerable and open and able to tell myself that it's going to be okay that is actually a source of strength for me now. And I love doing the podcast, despite my nervous, nagging fear of uh, just, you know, Spencer or Kelly going, Swetha, you know, I don't think we really want you on the show anymore. <laughs> we voted you off the island. <laughs> Not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, so... You're stuck with us. Uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I'm glad. So um, I was thinking about the same thing about vulnerability, and I was thinking about the strength... One of the strengths, at least, of 12-step of programs in general mm -hmm. is the way that we can identify with the other people in the program, that, mm -hmm. that we can identify with people's struggles, and then because we can identify with people's struggles, we can start to identify with their successes, and we can start to believe that those successes might apply to us as well. Mm -hmm. And 
if everybody only ever talked about the good stuff, if they only ever talked about how much better they are now that they came to Al-Anon, and I have to admit, I, I, I fall prey to that, but I try to mix it with, and this is how awful it was, and this is how terrible I felt, and these are the stupid, horrible things I did, and I got over it. Yeah. Or I'm getting over it. Mm-hmm. And my life is better because I'm doing these things. That maybe somebody else can hear that and say, well, gee, yeah, he, he was where I am now, more or less. And he got through it. You know, and, and I, I, I've had that experience as, as an audience member at OpenAA talks where, um, you know, an alcoholic gets up and tells their own story about their struggle and, and, and able to look at that and apply, you know, sort of identify that person with the, you know, my loved ones who are alcoholic and to say, well, it, and back when, when my primary, um, uh, loved one who, who got me into the program, um, uh, was still active, I could say, you know, um, this person made it. And this person's story looks very much like my loved one's story. And, and that could give me hope for, for my loved one's recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I think same thing happens in, in Al-Anon when I hear somebody say, yeah, and, you know, I did this horrible thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> and I'm like, oh, yeah, so did I. <laughs> you know, and I think that, I mean, if you if you've been in a meeting, mm-hmm. you'll help hear people say these these things about you know these stupid things they did, and everybody laughs. Okay, and the reason that we laugh is not because we think it's funny, mm-hmm. and it's not because we're making fun of the person. It's because we're identifying, yeah, and we're saying, yeah, that's me too. I've <laughs> yeah, been there. Right. Um, I understand <laughs> it, and it's 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 attention relief, mm-hmm. and it's an identification, and. We only we only get that identification by allowing ourselves to be vulnerable and expose ourselves, uh, you know, pass through, around, in spite of the shame that we feel about the things that we've done. And and as you said, Swetha, as we do that, as we do that, the shame starts to evaporate because shame needs what? What were the secrecy? What? Secrecy, silence, and judgment. Secrecy, silence, and judgment um, mm-hmm. to, <clears throat> to to thrive, thrive. and. If we can break through the, the silence, if we can break through the secrecy, then, and if we do it in a safe place, mm-hmm. okay, yes. um, you know, there, there are things that, that I will, I will talk about in an Al-Anon meeting, and I don't know half the people in the meeting, okay, but I, but I know the meeting and I trust the meeting. Mm-hmm. I feel it's safe. There are things they'll talk about with a sponsor or with an Al-Anon friend that I will not talk about with, you know, other people in my life because I don't trust them at that level. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't trust them enough to be vulnerable with them, but I've found a place where I can be vulnerable, where I can open up uh, my closet and, <laughs> and start to let some of the skeletons out. And, and when they see the light, they start to crumble. Mm-hmm. And, and that is really powerful for me. Yeah. I would also add, I was thinking about why things are funny and why there's so much laughter and embracing in meetings. And, Yesterday we were talking about tragedy plus time equals comedy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I would also add that tragedy plus time plus awareness equals comedy because you have to be aware of um, the pain of the past and the joy of the present in order to really see 
see things in a different light that could be humorous. Whereas one time when you were going through it, it was not funny at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> at all. True story. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it's true. Another thing I really love about the fact, I mean, when I hear people laughing, when I laugh at meetings, um, it helps me when I hear other people's story to love myself more. Mm -hmm. um, I'm able to hear one of the things we say in Al-Anon meetings before the meeting starts is that, or I mean, sorry, at, at, the, at the meeting ends, just kidding. At the, as the meeting ends um, <laughs> is uh, we may, you may not like all of us, but you will love us in a very special way, the same way we already love you. Mm -hmm. And that's true. Um, at first I thought, man, these people are just, just f emotional floozies. Like how can you love a room full of a hundred people that you don't even know, but um, but you can, and I do. And and when I hear other people's stories, I'm able to feel love and compassion for those people and laugh with them and and feel love for myself in that situation. Like I'm able to feel compassion for them and then think about the situation when I the way I'm judging myself and criticizing myself from for that action, and then think. You know, it's not that bad. I can laugh at myself. I can feel love and compassion for myself too. So I sort of recognize myself in the other people as well. And I, I really love that about meetings too. Otherwise, it's, it's very easy for me to feel shame and um, break things down in ways that are very critical and judgmental. But when I can be in a safe place, I react in ways that are not critical or judgmental <clears throat> for other people. And so I can do that for myself too when I leave the meeting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, we've talked a little bit about, you know, um, breaking, breaking through shame um, uh, in recovery. And I don't know if we want to try to maybe have a little bit of contrast between what we did before we found recovery, how we dealt with shame. Um, I think I didn't deal with it. <laughs> I okay. Say, that's the end of the conversation. <laughs> yeah, that's the end of the conversation. I did not deal with it. I stuffed it. Um, I lived it. I felt it. It, it would well back up. At any moment, uh, I could have a, a memory, uh, you know, if I, something that I did 30 years ago. Mm. And that memory can come back, and the shame that goes with that memory can come back with it right away because I, I took that shame and I, I took it inside and I, and I held on to it. And to a certain extent, I, I treasured it and, and cosseted it and, and, yeah. you know, I'd, I'd bring it out at, at moments when I, for some reason needed to feel bad about myself. I could, <laughs> I could bring out all those, those shame filled things that I had, had done in the past. Um, and what I try to do now, and I think I need to talk, you know, with my, maybe with my sponsor about, about an incident that, that does keep coming up. And, and I keep telling myself, you know, you were 24 years old and you were young, you were, in a strange place, you were in a strange culture, you misinterpreted signals, you're not that person anymore, and you really um, don't, you, you know, I need to forgive myself for the past, and I keep telling myself that I have, but it keeps coming back, and and that one needs, I think that one needs to come out, and uh, uh, um, really come out into the light of day, and uh, and just get you know, blast it into smithereens because it, it, it's not, it's not, it's definitely not as strong as it was, but it's still there and it's still, it can still pull up that old, mm -hmm. I was just an idiot. Feeling. <laughs> um, I am an idiot. Okay. And that's the shame. Okay. Mm -hmm. I am an idiot. Not, I did a stupid thing. Right. I am an idiot. That's, that's the difference. And, and that's still there. Um, 
Nick, I know you said you've been doing a lot of work um, on, on breaking through shame. What are some of the things that you do? So this is really interesting because I, I would argue that, so I didn't know that it was shame in the past, but um, so the, of the different responses to shame. So here I, I brought my notes from when I was doing some of this work and some of the different responses to shame once you're triggered is paralysis, faltering energy, escapism, withdrawal, perfectionism, criticism, and rage. And I would say I probably experienced every one of those reactions to um, shame-triggering situations, but I didn't have the awareness or tools to do anything different. Um, one of the things I was reading was that a child has to swallow what it's fed. An infant must swallow what it's fed. And I was fed shame. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, <laughs> It took a long time to understand that that was the spiritual food under which I grew up in, in, a, in a lot of situations. And that was my normal initial reaction to a lot of things were shame-based responses. Um, and now that I've been trying to understand, and I'm telling you, the, the key for me in, in doing my shame recovery work was understanding the physical reaction because... When I feel it, I get it. I feel it and I say, oh, that's what that is. And now I can know what the trigger is. So I feel the physical reaction to shame, which is, it it is literally a flooding Mm -hmm. in my body of chemicals. I feel it. Mm -hmm. And I try to, and then my tools are, I don't react. I try to say I need a minute or walk away or kind of process it. And then I, I find that it's, you know, it's easier now because I don't also have to bring the same judgment with me anymore that I used to. Like, I don't feel, I don't feel that because I have these triggers, I am inherently bad or wrong. Um, but I don't want to have the same reactions and responses to do it. I heard in a meeting once, I'm not responsible for my first thought, but I am responsible for my second and third thought. Mm. So it was, it was, I'm okay if I get, triggered and I'm okay if I have that initial reaction, that's not the thing I have to fix. What I have to address or what I want to address is what I do with that information and then where I take it from there. And, you know, I don't always take it to the right place. (laughs) Sometimes I take it to the old place. Exactly. (laughs) Um, But one of the other messages that I, that I have been meditating on a lot is um, Byron Katie is another one of my favorite kind of acceptance gurus. And she had a quote one day where it was, wherever you are, that is your potential. And my initial reaction to it was, ew, (laughs) that's gross because it, and and that was a shame-based reaction that was, well, that's not good enough. (laughs) But then I realized how accepting and embracing it is. And that's the whole back to competence equals competence that this moment is okay. I'm okay. I'm Mm -hmm. good enough. There's not this unattainable, unachievable state of nirvana that I am trying to reach. And I also, I do meditate. I have to be careful of trying to find this blissful state. And it's really not ever about finding a blissful state. It's really about, can I just be okay in the moment, whatever is going on? So that's kind of I hope that's not too much, but that's where I... No, that's great. Thank you. Um, and, and I'm going to want the, the name of that, that person you just mentioned. Maybe we can put a link up in the, on the website too. Yeah, Byron Katie. She's um, fabulous. And, uh, you know, and that's... It, it, well, I guess I'll talk about that later. Okay. 
<laughs> I had something I was going to say here. Um, I'm looking at our I'm looking at our notes here, um, and uh, again a quote from Brene Brown. She says the two most powerful words when we're in struggle are "me too," and that just that comes back around to this identification. The reason that that this program for me has been really powerful in in pushing through shame. And you know, when I came in here, one of the things that prevented me from coming to Al-Anon was shame. Shame that I was in love with an alcoholic, that I had chosen this person to be in my life, and that somehow that made me a bad person. Right? Uh, I couldn't I couldn't admit it. And coming into my first meeting meant it meant that I think it meant actually that my pain overpowered my shame mm-hmm. at that point that I was in I was in so much spiritual pain uh and emotional pain that it didn't matter anymore it didn't matter anymore and by the end of that first meeting um I had already I think gone a long ways towards breaking through that shame that particular shame because there was a whole room full of people there who were in love with alcoholics, maybe were children of alcoholics, married to alcoholics, parents of alcoholics. And, you know, they were doing okay. They were doing okay. And, and, and somehow I felt from just being there, from hearing people talk, uh, that I was not judged for the fact that I was in love with an alcoholic, you know, that, and, and that was, that was really, that was really big. And that enabled me to keep coming back. And, um, you know, because I could say, yeah, me too. You too. Um, before I came to the program, I, I kind of did what you were mentioning, Spencer, where I would guard shame. Like it was the most, uh, precious thing that I could possibly have. I didn't want to share it with anybody. I didn't want anyone to know it was there. I wanted to protect it from the outside world. And I protected it even from, uh, sometimes even from myself. I mean, when people said, I love you, or you're doing so well, or something like that, I wouldn't let any of that go anywhere near my shame, because it was more important for me to feel that shame mm-hmm. than it was for me to internalize that affection or praise. And um, that was, I mean, Man, that's how I dealt with shame before recovery. And I used to do that too. Whenever I got past the first track of you're not good enough, when I got to who do you think you are, that's when I would bust out the shame just there because um, it was more important. I was terrified that I would become this egomaniacal, aggressive person that, you know, tries to force uh, like whatever it is I want on other people and break all boundaries and everything like that, which is possibly i mean which was true in some ways but not in the ways that i imagined that i was doing it or would do it otherwise so i'd bust out shame to keep myself in line um anytime i felt the slightest bit of pride or, or vanity or sometimes self well self-esteem <laughs> if i if i saw self-esteem <laughs> creeping into my body i would just be like oh no 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 we gotta we gotta pull out the big guns remember that 99.36 percent so i thought <laughs> failure <laughs> and um and that's, that's how I kind of dealt with shame before recovery. I thought it was very important for me to feel shame. I thought it was good for me to feel shame because if I didn't feel shame, I would be a bad person. And um, that's, <laughs> I went to a lot of... Uh, what a twisted message. Right? <laughs> Wait, I love that you said it's self-esteem. It's not even pride or ego. It's literally just 
yeah healthy self-esteem yeah. yeah anything good about myself i was like if i think anything you give my self-esteem an inch it's gonna walk all over me that's what i thought <laughs> and how awful would <laughs> that how be awful <laughs> <laughs> i would think i mean and then i was afraid that i wouldn't have get this i wouldn't have a realistic idea of who i was if i had self-esteem sure and the shame was the realistic idea of who i was so um so that's what i clung to i really sincerely desperately believed that i mean i didn't call it shame back then i called it reality and um and when people would argue with me, I'd be like, you don't know. You're not in here, guys. You're not in my head. You don't know the things I think. You don't know the things I say. Um, and, and that's what I thought. And, um, when, once I came into recovery, then, um, well, first I felt shame about feeling shame because the, the rule was that you're supposed to be healthy, you see, because I need the rules. The rule, you need the rules. <laughs> yeah. right. I need the you. rules. <laughs> and, um, and I would, I wanted to be like, uh, I wanted to get, done with the 12 steps in 12 days i was like it's not too hard i could do this and i didn't want to do it with a sponsor because that would mean that i couldn't do it on my own anyway that was very quickly just gone from my mind i was <laughs> came to the sudden and painful realization that this was going to be impossible on my own um and uh and then after a while actually Brene brown kind of touches on this um in her talk uh she says that it's okay to feel shame that it's human to feel shame your mm -hmm. options are feel shame and be human or don't feel shame and be a sociopath. Well, right. I mean, that's human, but not, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, horrible. actually, as, as I recall, what she said was, as far as we know, as far as we can tell, the only people who don't feel shame are sociopaths. Yeah. Right. And, and I was, for the first time, I was able to feel shame and just be, just sit with it. Um, this is not something that came out of a recovery program. I go to uh, a therapist also. And something she mentioned to me that I really loved was, um, you know, there's there's nothing really good and bad. It's just our thinking that makes it so. Yes. It's not that, and you know, when, when I feel shame, I'm like, this is terrible. I have to fix this. Or I feel sad. This is terrible. I have to fix this. Or this is happy. I have to make it go on forever. But it's not. It's just, it just is. And I'm able to just feel shame and just accept it for what it is and then say, you know, well, I feel shame. This is why I feel shame. And this is my next thought. Uh, which is going to be usually something different. And I'd like to say that I'm so good at recovery and I get that 100% every time in recovery that I'm able to do that every time. Um, but I'm afraid I don't even get a 99.34% there. <laughs> I, um, I mean, it just depends. Um, but the important, the, another thing for me with shame is to remember that it's okay for me to feel shame. It's okay for me to screw up sometimes, a lot of times, as the case may be, and then let go and then move forward. And that's how mm -hmm. I'm able to deal with shame and recovery is I feel shame or I feel sadness or I react in an extraordinarily codependent way <laughs> like I did this morning. <laughs> and um, yeah, this keeps going, people. <laughs> this is an ongoing process. There's no making it to where you're 100%. Um, but yeah, uh, and and then the first thing I do is feel shame. And, the, and I try to remember that the next thing I can do is talk to my sponsor or talk to a program friend, um, do an inventory, a quick uh, 10th step, which is a daily inventory where I just jot down, you know, this is something that happened. And then, um, and then let it go, let it go and realize it's going to be okay. It's not the end of the world. It's not that big of a deal. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, that, so shame is, is just a natural thing, yeah. part of being human. Mm -hmm. And, what we what we do differently now is is to recognize it, um, to say, yeah, I'm human, mm 
Right. Um, and I think I want to close this segment with uh, um, the uh, today's reminder uh, section from the, the reading we did at the beginning, which says, Today I will love myself enough to recognize shame as an error in judgment. And there's a quote here, The ultimate lesson all of us have to learn is unconditional love, which includes not only others, mm-hmm. but ourselves as well. And that's uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And uh, so after a short break, we'll be back with Our Lives in Recovery, where we talk about the meetings we attend and what's happening in our lives. And what's the music here, Swetha? We're going to listen to Radiohead, then they're going to sing Creep, which was my favorite song ever. (laughs) And uh, in my undergrad, as I was telling you guys, I used to play it all the time because, uh, well, A, I wasn't in recovery, and B, I felt a lot of shame, and I related to the song a lot. Essentially, the guy is saying, I'm not good enough. I'm a bad person. I wish I was more like you. Um, I wish I was perfect, things like that. I'm a creep. I'm a weirdo. Yeah. section of the podcast we talk about our lives in recovery what's happening in our meetings and in our lives this week nick so this week um i thought wednesday night's meeting was fantastic and it was about isolation and it's funny because i struggle with this at work i have i i lead teams um but i also have to have time alone i have my own office space and that can be a dangerous thing because sometimes I'll use it to hide. <laughs> uh, 
not consciously, but kind of that's connected back to the shame spiral of mm-hmm. kind of self-sabotage where I'll go help everybody else and be with everybody else and support everybody that needs support, but then I'll just go be alone and get stuck there sometimes. Um, so I was thinking about how I use my office to isolate in a way that's not healthy, that's not about just kind of downtime and recovering and, and get, drawing my strength. I mean, I'm an extrovert. I get strength from being with other people. So I was trying to think about how isolation really sucks the energy out of me. So how do I find a space in my office that I'm not alone with? And so what I've started to do is take my laptop out into conference rooms or into public areas and do the work that I have to do by myself, but around other people, um, because I really need that energy. And sometimes mm-hmm. I have one friend in my office who uh, she's on a spiritual path too, separate from separate from 12-step recovery, but we talk about a lot of this stuff. And sometimes I'll say, hey, could you just come and work in my office? Mm -hmm. And she'll sit at the table next to me. And sometimes she'll just say, hey, can I just come and sit in your office? And um, so I I know that I have to be very careful of isolation. I I don't know that I know how to um, be alone well in some ways. I can, in practicing meditation, I have learned that that is a really important time for me. But I think part of it is, is that I'm doing something Mm -hmm. and you know, my value is in that I'm doing my value is in (laughs) that I'm producing. It's not, it can't just be that being Nick is enough. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I had a lot to think about on all around this topic and around isolation this week. Uh, And it was a really good week for me. Thanks, Nick. How was your week? Oh, it was really good. I was at the Wednesday meeting. I actually, that was my last, um, that was my last week chairing for the Wednesday meeting. And um, <clears throat> and uh, the person that was supposed to lead this week called me two hours before she was supposed to lead and said, Swetha, so, uh, yeah, not going to make it. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and I, was lo- I looked at the first thing I did was look at my watch. And then the second thing I thought was, well... I'm going to go to a meeting full of codependents. How hard is it going to be to get someone to do a talk for me? <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's an awesome thing. And uh, I remember thinking, well, I should give some people a heads up first. So I called and um, I am a few people just to say, hey, you know, I might need someone to do a lead for me today. Um, if you can, let me know. If you can't, don't worry about it. I'll just announce and we can just sit awkwardly for an hour or two. It won't be a bad thing. It'll be fine. We can just meditate or something. And um, <clears throat> I think a year ago or even, shoot, even like a week ago, um, I might have just like gone into a panic, like, oh my gosh, this is what they're all going to remember me as, the chair that couldn't get a lead for the last time. And, oh, no. <clears throat> but then this time I was shame. just... Shame. Yes, shame. <laughs> and uh, for a split second to Spencer, I thought maybe I should just not tell anyone and just surprise them <laughs> at the meeting. Um, but, uh, but no, I just, uh, at this point I was just kind of like, no, it's going to be fine. The world's going to go on. I trust that, you know, we'll come, we'll, we'll, we'll rally. It'll be fine. Worst case scenario, I'll give a lead myself. I I hope I won't have to pull that out, but, uh, I can. Um, and I, it was really great to hear that talk from, uh, the lead on Wednesday, the surprise lead on Wednesday, because, um, my usually my instinctive reaction when I'm faced with something like that, like a slight change in plans is I'm alone and I have to fix this all by myself. But it wasn't that way. I was able to reach out to people and they were able to be helpful. Um, 
And that was great. And um, Friday, we talked about step three, which um, was ex- which is to turn to make the decision, make a decision to turn our will and lives over to the care of God as we understood him, which was a perfect, um, which is perfect for me for that day. Uh, by the way, it's my favorite step. <laughs> I love that one. And it was perfect for me that day because I had just um, <clears throat> come up to a situation that caused me some frustration. I was I was annoyed. I, I let myself get annoyed and frustrated about the situation. And um, it was easy for me to just say, I'm really annoyed about this. But then I went back to step three, turned my will and life over to the care of God, as I understood him, again. And uh, so I constantly make those decisions and then take them back. But uh, once I made that choice to turn it over, I realized that I come up against these situations over and over and over again because I'm putting out to the universe that I want to be healed. I want to be able to handle these things. And the universe keeps giving me opportunities to do that. And once the second I made that, took that third step, I was able to say, this is actually a good thing. This is this is good for me. This is an opportunity for me to be better. I was thankful for that. So yeah, Spencer? Right. Um, so I want to talk about something that maybe not directly related to recovery, but it's something that I wouldn't be doing mm-hmm. if I hadn't come into recovery. And one of the things that I've, I've discovered um, as, as I've been in recovery and I came back to, you know, finding some spiritual path in my life is that I really enjoy working with young people, um, and in particular with like teenagers, high school age teenagers. And so I've been working with the teens uh, at my church, both uh, locally, first locally, and then um, in a multi-state area for the last about five years. And so last weekend, I went to a conference. Um, it was a social justice-focused conference. There were about 80 or 90 youth there. Um, and we had workshops on a number of topics. Uh, and uh, some of us went out into the community at West La- in West, La- West Lafayette, Indiana, where the conference was happening and, and worked at, at some different um, uh, local, uh, uh, I don't know, I don't want to call them charities, but uh, one group went to a homeless center. I think they did some painting there. Uh, my group went to their uh, local pride center and helped them with some projects they had and learned about what the what the center does. And there was another group I forget. I think they went to the food bank and did something there. And you know, it was a, it was a really wonderful experience. And and I like Nick. Uh, am an extrovert. I'm a shy extrovert, which is very difficult at times. Uh, but I am an extrovert, and uh, and so I get energy from people, but without the tools that I have learned, uh, living in a church with 80 teenagers who are acting in normal teenage ways uh, for a weekend would not be possible. Um, it just would not be possible. I would be trying to fix things. I would be uh, internalizing other people's actions and 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 uh, it just it wouldn't be a healthy place for me or the other people. So, um, you know, that was really good. And, and it both, that sort of thing both exhausts me and energizes me at the same time. Funny thing about the Wednesday night meeting, I was another one of the people that, that Swaitha messaged about, uh, hey, could you do a lead? <clears throat> and so I, you know, picked up the book and I looked at, at, in there and I said, oh, you know, isolation would be a good topic. <laughs> but, you know, it looks like this other person's really got it under control. She's making some notes and stuff. She's got a daily reader. Maybe she, you know, I'll just, I'll let go and, and, and see what happens. Uh, and then, and then she said, yeah, and our topic for tonight is isolation. I'm like, <laughs> wow. Okay. There's some higher power at work there. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, that we both came up with the same topic as being, being a good one. And, uh, you know, Friday night, uh, uh 
I, I went to the same meeting as Swetha, and, and step three was our topic. And uh, it's it's really it's good for me to revisit that step and to think about, um, you know, in particular for me, I, I reflected on how I the only way I was really able to accept that that step when I first came into the program um, by uh, placing the higher power in the Al-Anon program itself um, uh, because I was, I was having difficulty with the, the concept of an external God uh, and, uh, and still feeling at that point that I really had to have a picture of what God was in order to make this step and, you know, and, and contrasting that with where I am now um, where uh I don't have a picture of a God, um, and I'm comfortable with that, but I know that, that there is a God that loves me and supports me that I can put my will and my life into the care of, mm-hmm. and, uh, and that I will receive the guidance that I need um, to do the right things. Of course, I don't always follow that guidance, but that's a separate issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and not quite coincidentally, our topic <laughs> for next week will be step three. Um, I was I was talking with Kelly at a meeting recently, and and she said, you know, I think we really should um, do episodes on all the steps. Mm-hmm. I said, well, so we did a step two episode in February, so maybe we should do a step three episode in March, and then it'll be a pattern, okay? And then it'll be a tradition, you know. And, <laughs> and so in April we'll do step four, presumably. We'll see how that goes. Um, so uh, we're doing step three next week, and as as always, we welcome your thoughts, and you can join the conversation by uh, calling and leaving a voicemail, or sending us an email, or by commenting um, on the on the website on the on the show notes on the website. Uh, so please, you know, let us know what what your questions or your experiences around step three are, and and we will uh, bring that into our conversation next week. Swetha, how can people send us feedback? You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Just put your podcast on pause and join the conversation at 734-707-8795. Or if you prefer not to use your voice, you can send us an email at feedback at recovery at the recovery show.com. Once again, that's feedback at the recovery show.com. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of shame or next week's topic of step three. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, about, let us know. Nick, where can our listeners find out more about The Recovery Show? Our website URL is therecoveryshow.com, and it has all the information about the show, including notes for each episode, a blog with daily meditations, links to the music we play, and a page to which we periodically post recordings of Alan on Open Talk speakers. There's also a few links to other recovery podcasts and websites that we like. And another way to contribute to the content of the podcast and the website is to leave comments on the show notes or on the blog. Just hop on over to therecoveryshow.com and enter the conversation there. And we have some listener input this week. Um, We got an email. Uh, Melanie wrote, Hi, guys. My name is Melanie. I'm 24, living in Australia. Unfortunately, I am battling with the disease of addiction. I was in a long-term rehab called Mirakai, I hope I pronounced that right, place of peace, and fell into complacency at six months clean. Got discharged from the rehab, and I'm home with my parents, which is hard for them too. Had a pretty tough relapse, but Mirakai phoned back and said I can go in back in, in a few weeks. I couldn't be happier. I was Googling recovery self-help podcasts when I was fortunate to stumble across the recovery show. I've downloaded all your podcasts and onto your website every day. I never knew such a thing existed, and it is so comforting to not feel alone. I have f- friends and family who are supportive, but hard going through recovery when you're on your own. I now don't feel alone. I have support and friends, and one of those are you all. 
I just want to thank you for being so open and honest in your shows. I love your music. And when I go back into rehab, I will be listening over and over again to what podcasts I have. Keep doing what you're doing. I love it. Thanks, Melanie. That's awesome. And Melanie, I really want to thank you for your openness and honesty um, and for letting us know that that what we do does, um, you know, touch people's lives because, uh, you know, there are two reasons we do this. One is that we enjoy doing it. Uh, and we get a lot out of it. I know I get a lot out of it personally. Um, it's like another meeting in my week. It really yeah, is. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and but the other reason we we're doing it is is for people like you, uh, for for all of our listeners who, um, for whatever reason, want to hear a voice of recovery uh, at at a time during their week when maybe they can't get to a meeting or they can't call a friend. Um, so thanks for your thanks for your resp- uh, feedback there, Melanie. That was wonderful. We also got a comment on the website from Mary, who writes, "Thanks so much for these podcasts. This is a lifesaver for me right now. I work alone in the middle of the night with lots of time to think and need to think about recovery things. It's a great way to catch a meeting between meetings. I actually catch several of these at once, and I'm downloading again to listen again. The music is awesome and really hits home. Please keep this up because I have a very long way to go." And uh, Again, thank you, Mary, and uh, yeah, keep coming back. Um, we got to say that at least once each each episode, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and especially since Kelly's not here <laughs> to this week. Um, and uh, we also got a couple of iTunes reviews. Uh, Ashin writes, "Awesome recovery podcast with five stars. Please keep sharing your experience, strength, and hope. I love listening to this while I'm at work and staying connected when I can't make it to a meeting. Thanks." And Belly says, helps bring me serenity. Also five stars. Thank you. I really enjoy this podcast because it brings me peace and serenity between meetings. It gives me a lot of food for thought. And I like that there are multiple hosts because they all bring different perspectives. And we thank you for those reviews. And if you, our listener, has have not given us a review on iTunes, I'd like to ask that you please go over there and do so because every review puts us a little higher on the list and helps people to find this podcast who might need it. Thank you. A little bit of news um, about the podcast. Uh, the Recovery Show is now available on Stitcher Radio, which um, we had a request uh, from, I think it was Jeff, a few weeks ago uh, to, to get on Stitcher. Stitcher is a, um, well, I'll read their little their little press release thingy here. Stitcher is an award-winning free mobile app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows, plus discover the best of news, entertainment, and sports on demand. Listen to whatever you want, whenever you want, with one free app. And it is. It's a free app you can download to your smartphone, whether that's, uh, iPhone, uh, Android phone. I used to have it on my BlackBerry back when I had a BlackBerry. And um, Stitcher will stream the podcast rather than having to download it to your phone, which, um, you know, if you've got lots of lots of digital time, that works. Um, or if you're in Wi-Fi. Uh, and if you maybe don't have a lot of storage on your phone, like I did not have a lot of storage on my BlackBerry, it was really um, helpful to just be able to stream it. And uh, so we're going to close now. And Nick, what's our what's our song? So we're going to close the show with Miranda Lambert's song, Mama's Broken Heart. Um, it's a song about a woman who's losing it over a breakup and acting out inappropriately in public. And as the word gets around, her mother's clearly feeling a lot of shame. And, it, and in an attempt to prevent her daughter's behavior and her own shame from getting worse, she's trying to convey the urgency of hiding your feelings and keeping up appearances. And some of the lyrics are, I can hear her now saying she ain't going to have it. Don't matter how you feel. It only matters how you look. Go and fix your makeup, girl. It's just a breakup. Run and hide. You're crazy and start acting like a lady because I raised you better. Got to keep it together even when you fall apart. But this ain't my mama's broken heart. 
And uh, one of a favorite line of, of us in the song is, run and hide your crazy. <laughs> that says a lot of Al-Anon. And we all like the use of crazy as a noun. And we want to thank Martha S. for suggesting this song. I cut my bangs with some rusty kitchen scissors. I screamed his name till the neighbors called the cops. I numbed the pain at the expense of my liver. Don't know what I did next. All I know I couldn't stop. Word got around to the butterflies and the Baptist. My mama's phone started ringing off the hook I can hear her now saying she ain't gonna have it Don't matter how you feel, it only matters how you look Go and fix your makeup, girl, it's just a breakup running Hide your crazy and start acting like a lady Cause I raise you better, gotta keep it together even when you fall Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you, one day at a time. Go and fix your makeup when it's just a break.